Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Who the hell do you think you are? like a loving machine when you're listening to the Stitch Wrestling Podcast. I want to thank James Brown for writing that song about his favorite wrestling podcast, Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. I am the host of this. And if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps, indeed, we will give you a Raw Bone podcast. Now, I've asked the question before, is there another wicked good podcast out there? How about we ask this guy, sir, is there another good wrestling podcast out there? No. Not even another wicked good podcast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, put in John McAdam in the search and follow the guys fighting with chairs. You want to be part of our Facebook group. If you go to Facebook and search Tick to Wrestling, it comes right up. Let me give you an example why. Anthony Aragona independently asked if I watched the old Bedlam from Boston show on the local channel 25 back in like 82, 83. Yes, I did. This show was an unmitigated disaster. Sometimes it was on, sometimes it wasn't. That's the only way I can describe their schedule. If it's 10.05 and there's still an old movie playing, you could assume it wasn't coming on. It was filmed in a local studio, and they could not fill one row of seats on the hard camera. Like, they didn't even think to tell the wrestlers to just bring their friends and family members so it doesn't look so bad on TV. Not one row of seats on the hard cam. And to tell you a little bit about, like, what this show was like, they had someone in the... They had a heel tag team called the Soul Brothers. And they had someone in the audience with a sign, a, a cardboard sign and it said Soul Bros Stink, and it had stick figures on it. But it gets better. The Soul Brothers were tormenting this wrestler who was in street clothes. His name was Tony Ulysses. And it was two-on-one, and Tony Ulysses was, was not backing down. And he took off his shirt to reveal that he had a Superman T-shirt underneath the shirt, and the Soul Brothers got scared and ran away. This is the, re- the local wrestling we got, and I don't think they were trying to be funny. I think they thought this would be entertaining and it would draw people in. I didn't see every episode because it was on Sunday morning and sometimes I had to work or play baseball or sleep, whatever, but I did see a few shows, and they were a complete disaster. And with that question out of the way, I want to introduce a newcomer to the Stick to Wrestling guest seat Mr. Dave Flaherty. Dave, thank you for taking the time and coming on. My pleasure. How are you guys? I'm doing really good. It's a good Sunday out here in New Hampshire. Dave, before we get started with the rest of the Wait, wait, wait. Wait, is there such a thing as a good Sunday in New Hampshire? (laughs) Now, well, when the Patriots win, yeah. (laughs) But not today. And I guess you didn't hit a moose on your way home uh, with your car? (laughs) We, we don't have moose down here. We're like Metro Boston down here. But if you go a little bit oh, north, okay. I mean, I've seen moose. Dave grew up in Florida watching Florida Championship Wrestling. I'm going to hear all kinds of cool stories from him. But before we do that, Dave, I mean, Eddie Van Halen recently passed away. We're still kind of hurting from that. Do you have an Eddie Van Halen story that you want to share with us? I, I know it's not sticking to wrestling, but I want to hear the cool story. Yeah, I worked in the music industry for around 24 years, retail, wholesale. And when Judas Priest did their first United States tour, I was a huge fan. They played the Fox Theater in Atlanta, Georgia, opening for, uh, I don't know if anybody you remember, a, a crappy band called Stars, S-T-A-R-Z. I Stars. Yeah, and, and REO Speedwagon was the headliner. I wanted to see them so bad, I called, uh, I worked for Peaches Records and Tate's, uh, semi-national retail chain at the time, got seventh row center seats at the Fox Theater, smuggled a mono cassette player into the show, walking down the aisle, looked over to the soundboard, and there's this short, fat guy with long hair and a beard standing there. And I'm going, okay, you know, man, yeah, I guess he works for the band. Judas Priest played a four-song, 25-minute set, and I'm pissed. 
I flew to Atlanta just for this. And I looked yeah. at my buddy, Mike, and I said, Mike, let's get the hell out of here. You know, these two bands suck. We walk out, we're in the lobby. I look over and there I see the guy at the soundboard, the same guy. And I walked up to him. He had an all access badge on a lanyard around his neck. And I said, uh, Hey man, you work for Judas Priest? He said, yeah. What's your name? I said, Dave. I said, you know where Fort Lauderdale, Florida is? He said, yeah, I do. Why? I said, I flew up here just to see Judas Priest. Four songs. I'm pissed off, man. And he says, that's all we're allowed to play? And I said, I want to at least meet the band. You know, I work in the music industry. I want to at least meet the band before I fly back tomorrow. He goes, all right, come over to Holiday Inn tomorrow. Call my room. John Blackburn was his name. We go over there on our way to the airport, and uh, he doesn't answer. And I figured, okay, I called Glenn Tipton's room. Glenn answers the phone. He says, yeah, we heard about you, mate. Come on up. And I got to meet the band, and I met their manager. Ended up in Los Angeles, and I happened to be unemployed at the time. Judas Priest were touring for the Hellbent for Leather album. Played the Starwood in Los Angeles, and a girl that worked in the New York office, uh, Debbie, she was always great. She said, Dave, you still unemployed? And I said, yeah. She goes, you used to play drums? And I said, I dabbled. And she said, could you set up Les's kit? We need to fire the drum roadie. He had a substance abuse problem with a month left on the tour supporting UFO. And I said, yeah, I can do it. And so they hired me the next day. Uh, we ended up in Seattle about five days later. And Kenny Downing, KK Downing, I used to hang out with him a lot more than any other guy in the band. And uh, we were staying in the Edgewater in Seattle, the hotel on the bay where Led Zeppelin had their famous little tete-a-tete uh, with a groupie. and. Uh, Kenny and I are in the elevator going to the gig. We're going down to the ground floor. The elevator stops, and there's a, about four or five people, and in this group is Eddie Van Halen. And Kenny says, Dave, it's fucking Eddie Van Halen. And I said, yeah, Ken, it is, man. Wow. And he goes, Dave, it's, it's, it's fucking Eddie Van Halen. I said, yeah, okay, man. Yeah, that's cool. And he goes, Dave, I can't believe it. And I said, Ken, yeah, come on, man, it's cool. You know, so, you know, the group splits up. Eddie walks into the elevator and he looks at Kenny and he goes, KK Downing, Jesus Christ, man, Judas Priest, the Ripper, Sad Wings of Destiny, Victim of Changes. And, and Ken's like out of his mind, you know, and it was like mutual admiration. I'm standing there watching this. And I'm going, I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe what the hell I'm experiencing right now. We get to the bottom floor and Eddie, you know, walks on. He goes, KK, man, this was so cool meeting you. And he walked away. And Kenny looks at me and he goes, Dave, I can't believe what just fucking happened. I said, all right, Ken, let's come on, man. Let, let, let's go to the gig. You know, it's time to play. I said, just. You know, when you're playing uh, center tonight, you know, just remember when you're going apeshit with your vibrato bar and your wah-wah pedal, just remember you met Eddie Pukin Von Allen tonight and just go to town, bro. You know, it was amazing. You know, I, it was it was absolutely freaking amazing. I, You know, there, there are times like this, you know, and I just think back of all the, the cool shit that I, that happened to me in my, you know, my years in the music industry and the people I met. I wish there were these friggin' smartphones back then. Oh yeah, you know, but you, it was you amazing. Sound like a, a music version of me, and uh, that is a cool story. And you didn't hang out to hear Stars S T A R Z perform Cherry Baby. My goodness, they sucked. I didn't have time. <laughs> they I just sucked. remember that song being on the on the radio in sixth grade. And yeah. that's all I know about them. But anyway, uh, so Thanks. yeah, big, <laughs> big fan of Florida wrestling. You tell us a little bit about how you first started watching wrestling. Like, when did you start watching, and how, what was your introduction to Florida wrestling? Little kid moving down here from Natick, Massachusetts, with the uh, sorry excuse of a man that impregnated my mom. Uh, he got a job down here in the hotel industry. Uh, we moved down here. Within a year and a half, I had a stepmother who was pregnant, and we were living, my mom and I were living with 
her stepmother and her three children, my two uncles and my aunt, the eldest uncle, um, he's about six or seven years older than me, dysfunctional family, but we were sharing a very small three-bedroom house. This is like the early 60s. My oldest uncle, Fran, slept on the couch. He was the man of the house. And he used to watch the Florida wrestling show from the West Palm Beach Network or station that came on at midnight, Saturday night slash Sunday morning. And he didn't never wanted to wake up me and Jeff, my other uncle, who's actually younger than me. You know, it shows you what a fucked up situation this family was. But anyways, after about two weeks, he, he comes in and he goes, guys, wake up. You got to see this. And he kept telling us before this night about these guys, the Kentuckians, Luke Brown and Grizzly Smith, about how big they were. He was telling us about the assassins. This is like 1963, 1964. Duke Kiyomoka and Hiro Matsuda. One of the first babyface teams back then was Don Curtis and Mark Lewin. Mark Lewin, the Purple Haze. Don Curtis, the first guy that I ever saw use a sleeper hold. And then I just got enamored. I was hooked. I, I couldn't miss watching it on a Saturday. Gordon Soley. He was like Walter Cronkite. He made you think that what you were watching was a legitimate athletic contest. Eddie Graham, you know, he was the booker. You know, he was all about making it look real, everything. But the talent that came through Florida was just beyond belief. The great Malenko, the greatest heel I've ever seen, along with Bobby Shane. Johnny Valentine, uh, Hiro Matsuda. I don't know if any of you guys in the Northeast ever saw him live. I pro you probably didn't, but a phenomenal professional wrestler. Just growing up in Florida and just the, the talent that came through here, you know, going to the Miami Beach Auditorium, you know, Barry Rose lists cards daily from Florida year by year, day by day. And I'd see these shows that I was at at the Miami Beach Auditorium, like an eight match card. You know, you got guys like Bill Watts, Buddy Colt, Paul Jones, Tim Woods, you know, all involved in the top three, four matches on the card. And like the third match on the card, Danny Hodge against Harold Matsuda. And, you know, back then I'm going, okay, you know, these guys are great wrestlers. But now I look at them, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I can't believe I saw this kind of stuff. You know, Tony Charles. You know, I always loved the, the guys from England, you know, because, you know, they were into chain wrestling. And uh, Tony Charles to this day he had the, the best dropkick I've ever seen in my life. Closest is Skip Young, Sweet Brown Sugar. They both had the same style. I don't know if Skip Young ever saw Tony Charles, but Tony would be standing within a foot, foot and a half of his opponent. He'd jump up, curl his legs underneath him, and just explode his legs and kick the living shit out of his opponent. And you sit there and you that. go, my God, how, how could that not be real? How could that not hurt? You know, and that's, it was just so believable. You know, yeah, it I, was, it was incredible. I, I've you never know? seen Tony Charles throw a drop kick and I'm going to have to seek that out because if he had a better drop kick than Skip Young or Jim Brunzel, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, man, when Tony Charles threw a drop kick, me and my friends' jaws dropped. You know, it's like, oh, my God. It, it, it was phenomenal. He, he was the first. You know, I mean, maybe Skip Young did it better. He was bigger. He was more athletic. But just whenever Tony Charles threw a drop kick, man, back then you would just go, Jesus Christ, man, is that guy's thorax in the same shape as it was five minutes ago? <laughs> really? You know. I mean, third match, third match of the Boston Garden was like SD Jones against Moose Monroe, and you're you're getting blaming <laughs> yawn the third match. I got to tell you guys, when some of the guys came down from the Northeast, you know, that were like upper card guys, you know, they'd come down here. We would go, okay, what's the big deal? Case in point, 
Smasher Sloan, Crusher Verdue, Bear Mikkel Cicluna, even Tony Parisi and Danucci came down here. Pedro Morales, you know, and Florida fans are going, okay, you know, uh, wow, all right. Me and one of my friends that used to go to the shows three times a week, as I got older, we were going to house shows three times a week. And one of my friends, Wayne Bruno, we heard Bruno was wrestling on one of the big St. Pete cards on Saturday night. They used to have him like once a month. And we're going, hey, let's go. Hey, let's go road trip. Let's just see what the big deal is. Bruno was wrestling Tanaka. Okay. You know, and I'm thinking, okay, Bruno wrestled Tanaka up in the Northeast. It was like the sec, maybe the third, the third to the, uh, the main event of the show. And we're sitting there, you know, the match is going on and the crowd was dead. You know, it was like, Bruno was like punch kick. It was like, he was boring to us. You know, three uh, times a week. I'm yeah, we would go to over here. Me and my friends would go to house shows three times a week. This is back in the seventies. There was nothing to do. You know, Monday and Wednesday night, you go out to a bar. There's nothing happening in Fort Lauderdale. Personally, we were apeshit over it. We would go to West Palm Beach on Monday night. Wednesday night was Miami Beach, and when you know, for a long time there was no wrestling allowed in Fort Lauderdale because of a riot that was caused by George the Blimp Harris and Aldo Bogni and Bronco Lubitsch. They finally started shows at the National Guard Armory, which is still about 10 blocks from where I live right now, and uh, we would set up the ring there because we got you know we were going to the matches, and a lot of the wrestlers got to know us because we'd go talk to them. I'm still friends, very good friends with Bob Roop to this day. I introduced Bob Roop to his wife. Wow. I introduced Bob Roop to his wife. I went to uh, one of the Barry Rose's fan fests, and I saw Bob. I hadn't seen him in years. The last time I saw him was when I was living in Los Angeles. This is a true story. I swear to you, this is God's honest truth. I was laying on Venice Beach one Saturday. And I see this, this is like when I was, maybe 1980. And I see this body running down the beach towards me, just jogging along the the beach. And I'm going, and the closer he got to me, I'm going, wait a minute. Uh, I've seen this, something's weird here. The closer he got, I sat up and I stood up and I'm going, that's Bob. And I walked down to the water line. And sure enough, it was him. And I said, uh, hey, Bob, what are you doing out here? And he stops and he goes, Dave, what are you doing here? Embrace. I said, Bob, what the fuck's going on here, man? And he said, Dave, I just came back from Japan. I did a month tour for Baba, and I'm working on this movie with Sylvester Stallone called Paradise Alley. And I'm going, wow, man, that's pretty freaking cool. And he goes, yeah. And I said, uh, so Japan, huh? I said, I heard the money's good there. And he goes, yeah, it is. It's very good. And I said, how much? And he goes, it's none of your goddamn business. Uh, <laughs> well, Bob and I always got along so well. Bob was one of the only guys, you know, me and my friends, we'd always go back and talk to the wrestlers. I, you know, I, I, John, I told you once a long time ago. I got to meet Bobby Shane, which was like one of the biggest thrills of my freaking lifetime. But Bob was always the coolest wrestler. You know, he's always a baby face. When he turned heel, I walked up to him <laughs> the following week in Miami Beach Convention Hall. And I said, um, hey, Bob, am I so allowed to talk to you? And he goes, well, uh, are we friends? And I said, I like to think so. And I said, but you're a bad guy. And he goes, who the fuck cares, Dave? He says, you're my friend. You're my friend, man, of course, you know. But yeah, I, I introduced him to his wife. Uh, she passed away a couple of years ago. But one of the most amazing things, I hadn't seen Bob in a long time. And I went to Barry's Fan Fest in Tampa. And I walked up to him in the hotel lobby on Saturday morning. And, uh, you know, I said, hey, Bob, how are you doing? And he goes, oh, Dave, my God, he gave me a hug. He said, Dave, I want you to meet somebody. And he introduced me to his and Molly's son one of his two sons. His name was Kyle. And I looked at him and I said, Kyle, uh, I'm kind of responsible for you being here. And he goes, what do you mean? <laughs> and Bob said, Kyle, uh, Dave introduced me to your mother. 
I was like, I'm going to start crying. Because his Bob's wife Molly was one of the most beautiful human beings I'd ever met in my life. You know, uh, I, I took her and this girl I was dating. They were best friends. I took them to you know my this girl I was dating, Jean, and she said, "Dave, how come I never see you on Wednesday nights?" And I said, "Because I'm at the Miami Beach Convention Hall watching wrestling." She goes, "When are you going to take me?" And I said, "Okay, we'll go next week." And Molly said, "Can I come?" And I said, "Of course you can, Molly." And I of course I wanted to impress both of them, and I took them back and. Molly and Bob hit it off. They ended up getting married. Growing up in Florida, guys, it was just, it was amazing. The quality of wrestling down here, when you saw the, you'd go to shows. I mean, even Monday and Friday nights, Monday night was West Palm. They also ran a show in Orlando. Friday nights was Fort Lauderdale. They also ran a show in Tallahassee. More often than not, Orlando and Tallahassee were the A shows that night. We got the scrappings, the B shows. But just think if you put those two lineups together on one card, my God, that's, you know, just, but just Florida, just the way the product was presented. And of course, Gordon solely adding the legitimacy. It was amazing. Uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I used to get Florida wrestling on cable. I got it for like a year, like summer of 82 through about the summer of 1981. And the quality. Yeah, the, 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 those are the crap years. I mean, in the seventies, I mean, my God, you know, seeing Dory Funk Jr. And Jack Briscoe going to 90 minute broadways, you never got tired of it. You never did. You know, it was wrestling. I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't fighting. There wasn't no blood, but you were enthralled with what was going on in the ring. I mean, it, it was never boring. You know, now people would probably think it was as boring as reading a dictionary, but back then it was a clinic. And it was well worth, I mean, when Dory and Jack wrestled on the main event of a card, it was a guaranteed sellout. And you better get your tickets quick. It was must-see. I thought the and stuff I, I saw in the early 80s was, was phenomenal. So if it was even better before that, just wow. Yes, it was. I mean, it was good because I had just moved back here from Los Angeles in 81. And I what I loved was that when David Von Erich came down here, I thought that was freaking incredible. You know, they brought him down, you know, you know, show him how to be a heel, da -da 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 -da, you know, and he was tremendous, but, and I'm going to say it right now, I'm pretty sure a lot of people are going to disagree with me. I never, ever liked the Kevin Sullivan devil stuff. I was going to ask about that. Never. I mean, I, my understanding Never. is that did not go over very well. It was too over the top. It wasn't Florida wrestling that I grew up with. It wasn't about the gimmick. It was about what happened in the ring. You know, as far as gimmicks and, you know, back when I grew up in Florida, okay, yeah, you had the Mongolian stopper, Archie Goldie. But, you know, he pulled it off. I mean, it, was, it wasn't about the gimmicks. That's why you never saw the sheet down here. Because Eddie knew, yeah, okay, you know, the guys, you know, this gimmick. But, you know, who the hell wants to see him get in the ring, you know, and pull out a freaking gimmick, you know, with his pencil or whatever after five minutes? Florida fans aren't going to like that. They want to see wrestling. They want to see guys like Briscoe, the Funks, Bill Watts, Tim Woods. They just wanted to see wrestling. You know, it wasn't about gimmicks and all that bullshit you know i, I never liked the kevin Sullivan stuff I, yeah hey if i get a lot of heat for it i don't care i'm surprised number one that i think maybe it was different down there that you could take two attractive girls to a wrestling match you knew we do better than to do that in boston until deep in the whole yeah. era i mean boston garden was just a i don't know a madhouse but well, it's because i was the one that was taking them so Okay. <laughs> I think you would have been outnumbered up here. But anyway, you were at the Miami Beach Convention Center, I think it was, the night Jack Briscoe lost the NWA title yes. to Terry Funk. Tell One of the greatest that. nights of my life. One of the greatest nights of my life. One of my group of fans, it was four of us, was me, Wayne, Butch, and Aaron. 
Wayne was a huge Jack Briscoe, Mark. I mean, huge. Uh, even when we knew that the business was a work, Wayne still insisted. When it was a world title match, it was real. Like, Wayne, yeah, no. <laughs> you know, go Just keep your love affair with Jack going on. So anyways, that night, it was supposed to be Jack defending against Dory. Aaron called me up. He said, Dave, you know, me and him were the only two guys going that night out of our group before. So Aaron said, uh, Dave, you heard from Wayne? I said, no. And he said, I don't know if he wants to go. And I said, well, I don't care. Come on, Aaron, let's go. It's Wednesday night. There's nothing else to do. So Aaron said, I'm going to call him, you know, and he said, if, you know, if you don't hear from back me, uh, I'll come pick you up. So, you know, he comes, Aaron comes and picks me up and he said, you know, Wayne said he's going to want to go. He's seen the Jack Dory matches enough already. And he knows Jack's not going to lose. And I'm going, okay. So we get there. and word is around the hall for, you know because you know immediately me and Aaron go back and uh, Bruce Owens who I've known for years and years you know legendary in his in his own mind uh wrestling oh, yeah. referee we walk back to where the the guys where the dressing room was and uh Bruce says hey Dave uh Dory's a no-show uh Terry's here he's going to take Dory's place and I'm going really so I love Terry Funk Terry Funk's one of my favorite wrestlers ever ever and all of a sudden, you know, we see there's cameras there. Whenever there were cameras at a house show in Florida, you knew something was going to go on. Okay. Oh, yeah. Back then, the only time the NWA title changed hands was in particular cities. Tampa, Houston, St. Louis, Toronto. Never in my mind would I think that the NWA world title would change hands in Miami beach. Now be that as it may, I always thought it was perfect because Miami beach Cassius clay beat Sonny Liston in this very building. What a perfect place for an NWA world heavyweight championship title to change. That was always in my mind, but I figured it's never going to happen. And it happened that night. It was a surreal moment. When Terry walked out, me and Aaron knew the crowd was surprised. And then when Terry pinned Jack, it was, I mean, still to this day, guys, I can't, you know, I, I tell, you know, it's wrestling, but it's one of the greatest nights of my frigging life. I will never forget it. So anyways. <laughs> So we leave and we're going to meet Wayne at the bar that we always hang out in, in Fort Lauderdale, which is still close to where I live right now, two blocks away. And I said, Aaron, put the foot in the gas. We got to get back to the quarter deck and just, you know, drive Wayne freaking nuts. We get there and we walk in. I said, uh, Hey Wayne, should have went tonight. Uh, Jack lost. And he's going, Fuck you, Dave. I'm going, Wayne, he lost. Terry Funk won. He said, wait a minute. You know, it was Terry. No, it was Dory. He was supposed to be there. I said, Wayne, Terry, uh, Dory wasn't there. Terry took his place. They gave some lame excuse. Terry won. Read the Miami News tomorrow. Miami had two newspapers, the Miami Herald and the Miami News. Miami News used to always print the results on Thursday morning. I said, Wayne, buy fucking Miami News tomorrow, man. Read it. Your boy lost. It was it was beyond belief. I mean, me and Jeff Bowden went to Nashville to see Flair and Steamboat. You know, that was incredible. But seeing Terry beat, I mean, I respected Jack Briscoe for the wrestler that he was. But, I, I you know, I, I was always a heel fan. But I always had a hard-on for Jack, for baby faces. But Jack, because down here in Florida, he was rammed down our throats. Jack Briscoe, oh, really? this Jack Briscoe, that yeah, you know, like he, like he walked on water, you know, because he was Eddie Graham's guy, and I got tired of it. A number of people did, but I was like heels, you know. I was never a big babyface fan. The only babyface I really liked when I was a kid, one of my first favorite wrestlers back then when I was a little kid was Red Bastine. He had a program, a feud with Johnny Valentine down here, and then there was the Gladiator, Rick Hunter. Me and my one of my best friends, my two best friends in the world, Greg Good. Me and him used to watch wrestling every Saturday. And uh, all of a sudden, here comes this guy, the Gladiator. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, he's wrestling like a babyface. He's got a mask on and an Olympic singlet. And I'm going, Greg, 
guy's got a mask on, but he's wrestling like a good guy. And the gladiator slash Rick Hunter was the first guy that I ever saw that did the standing suplex. Lift a guy up, hold him over, you know, hold him up and suplex him. Or as Gordon Soli used to say, suplay. Suplay. First guy I ever saw do it. Don Curtis, first guy I ever saw use a sleeper hold. Bob Orton Sr., Bob Orton Jr.'s father, first guy that ever used the pile driver back in the early 60s. It was outlawed. You know, uh, if Bob Orton Sr. gave somebody a pile driver, uh, it was a big freaking deal. You know, it was almost like attempted murder. That's how the product was put over down here. And it was amazing. It was, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky to have grown up in Florida. I'm, I'm the same way you were with Mask Guys. The first time I saw a photograph of Neil Mascaris, I automatically assumed he was a heel. Same thing with Mr. Wrestling 2. And what a surprise. Right. Masks aren't just for the heels in wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, just to see Rick Hunter, the gladiator, was the first guy. And then, you know, and, and another one, Joe Scarpa. Yep. You got him as Chief J. Strongbow. I was at a Charlotte fan fest and I used to hang out with, you know, around Jim Cornette's table a lot, you know, uh, Dom and Dave, how you doing? Did you have a good time last night? Yeah, I did. Jim, you know, I went out and, uh, ate a Vicodin on the plane on the way up. I went to a titty bar and he, Dave, I can't believe you're fully pickled. I can't believe it. You know? So anyways, uh, I was hanging out with him, you know, a day or two later and, uh, you know, I saw a program and, uh, it was Joe Scarpa in a, it was an old Florida program. And I said, Jim, I want to buy it. And he said, well, Hey, you know, he's right down there. Uh, why don't you go have him autograph it? And I said, okay. So I bought it and I went up and I said, Joe, and he goes, uh, no, Chief J. Strongbow. I go, I said, no, you're not. You're Joe Scarpa. I said, uh, I just bought this program. Could you autograph it for me as Joe Scarpa? And he said, no. <laughs> and I said, uh, I said, wow, man, uh, why not? And he said, because I'm Chief J. Strongbow. I said, no, you're not. I said, you're an asshole. And I walked away from him. <laughs> but that, unfortunately, that story falls in line with many Chief J. Strongbow stories that are out there. Yeah. But yeah. This podcast might not exist without Chief J. Strongbow. So there we have it. I loved him as a kid. <laughs> hey, we've got a couple. Of, I, I, was, I was 10. What can I tell you? Hey, we've got a couple of questions I want to touch on. This is a really big one. Sean Olmstead sure. asks, when Dusty Rhodes left and took his crew with him, which was Barry Windham, Mike um, Rotundo, Blackheart, uh, and Ron Bass, just how devastating uh, was it to the territory? Brutal. Brutal. It got to the point where I didn't care whether I watched the Saturday show or not. Um, oh, wow. But I still watched it because it was wrestling. Honestly, I don't watch wrestling anymore on TV. I don't. I don't watch any of it. I have no interest in it whatsoever. But back then, when you are enamored, when you have to see everything you want to see, yeah. But Florida, once Dusty left, a lot of the talent followed him. And it just deteriorated. I mean, there were instances where every once in a while... I'll give you an example. Uh, Samu, you know, the Samoan Samu. Uh, I remember him in Florida. He, yeah, when he was here, I'm going, I would see him, I'm going, wow, he is fucking good, man. Interesting story. I was uh, talking to him, man, me and a, a former friend of mine who I used to go to the matches with, the War Memorial Auditorium. Uh, we were standing outside the, the heel dressing room and you're talking to Sam, very cool guy, very laid back. And this uh, guy walked up to him, a black dude, and he started just berating Samu unbelievably, calling him all kinds of names. And uh, Sam just, you know, had enough. And, you know, the black dude said, man, you, you're nothing but an effing piece of shit. And Sam spit on him, spit in his face. And I'm going, oh, my God. And, uh, I'm looking at my friend at the time, Robert, and I'm going, Bob, man, this is this is serious. And Sam stood there, and he goes, hey, man, uh, all right, what are you going to do about it? And the black guy says, man, I, I live like 10 blocks from here. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go get my gun. I'm going to come back. I'm going to kill your ass. I said, dude, man, calm down. Do you really think it's worth it? It's just wrestling. You know, he says, the motherfucker spit on my face. I said, you deserved it. 
you know, but Samuel was great, man. He was just the athletic ability. I mean, you could just see it. He had it, you know, I guess he had his issues, but one of the things back then, you know, going back to the Kevin Sullivan thing, I got to be very good friends with Angel Vashon with Luna. I was at her wedding when she got married to Tom Nash. I still miss her immensely to this day. I mean, she was a very good friend of mine. She's, she's come over to my apartment and hang out with me. Uh, you know, just, but, you know, other than that, it was the drizzling shits compared to what I was used to back when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, you know, and, you know, in the seventies, you know, it was crap. It was garbage. It got yeah. to the point I, I couldn't watch it anymore. I, I mean, I did, but, you know, the only time I watched it because there was nothing else on television, but I mean, you know, Lou Perez and, you know, the, the crap with, you know, the candy man. I mean, you know, when Dusty came back, you know, after his, you know, the thing with Crockett, the PWF, it's like, it's freaking horrible, you know, but the best, a couple of the Battle of the Belts shows were, were really good. I mean, that's when, here comes KG Muto. I mean, the ninja, uh, you know, oh my God, you know, who is this guy? All of a sudden he's a baby face and he's, he's doing his moves. And it's like, oh my God, every once in a while you would see something that like, wow, yeah. This makes me want to keep watching it. But other than that, I mean, Ed the Bulganer, God rest his soul. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, I was at War Memorial tonight, Luger and Brody, the cage. I was there that night. Oh, wow. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, what the fuck is going on here? Brody's not cooperating and Luger, you know, I mean, it was beyond belief. But, <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't want to say even better, but a few weeks, maybe a month later, there was another incident in War Memorial Auditorium, which basically killed the town. The main event was Ed the Bull Gantner against, I think it was Mike Rotunda. And Oliver Humperdinck was Gantner's manager. Bill Alfonso had his issues with, uh, you know, uh, whatever. And he freaked out in the ring. Alfonso lost it. He cowered down in the corner during the main event. It was five minutes into the main event of a crappy card, but it was still a house show in Fort Lauderdale on a Wednesday night. And he started taking his shirt off because uh, he was so high. And oh. uh, and Humberding's in ringside, and Rotunda's looking at him, at Humberding going, what the fuck's going on here? And they created this, like, little thing where Humberding eventually jumped up in the ring and, you know, diffused the situation. It was ugly, ugly. Here's the main event of a card, Ed the Bull Gander against Mike Rotunda. I, I think it was Rotunda. And it was just, that's how, I mean, it, drugs, it, 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 it was kind of out of control in Florida for, for a, a couple of years with, with drugs, you know, with, with the shit, with, with blow. Uh, yeah. And that's what kind of did it too. And I think a lot of guys are thinking, hey, man, you know, my last resort, you know, I'll go down to Florida, you know, uh, Dusty doesn't want me in Crockett's territory, whatever. Uh, it just was garbage it was horrible it was sad to see it really was for me it was incredibly sad to see but you know the business was changing vince new york you know he dominated and nobody had a chance you know it was sad sad to see i mean especially you know i mean it's sad for all of us even wwf fans who are used to the old Bruno Backlund style of wrestling, you know, now we've got this Hulk Hogan stuff and, you know, it was, it was completely yeah. different. Yeah. And, you know, like, no. like when Dusty left, they tried to replace him. I don't even know if they tried to replace him or not, but the top guys on the show. You couldn't replace Dusty. What's that? You couldn't replace him. He was a freaking icon here. Yeah. I mean, what, he was irreplaceable. Here's the thing. They, they tried having guys like Brian Blair, Scott McGee, and Mike Graham in the main events, and those guys were really good in the ring, but I just don't think they were going to draw a crowd. But then they tried something different. A guy named Lex Luger, who you know had not been a wrestler before, and they pushed right. him as a top attraction from day one. What did this look like to you? Uh, bottom line, horrible. Uh, I mean, he looked great, but you could tell within a month or two after seeing him, he had no clue about the business. You know, uh, they say Hiro Matsuda trained him. You know, he came from playing football, but he, it was all about the look. But the important thing was he didn't 
give a shit about the business. He had no respect for it. All of a sudden, you know, I guess it was like, hey, I got a chance to make some money because I'm too much of an asshole to be with an NFL team. Total opposite of Ron Simmons. Ron Simmons embraced the opportunity of going from, you know, football to wrestling. Ron Simmons embraced it. You know, he understood, hey, man, I can have a career in this. And this is kind of cool. I like this. To me, Luger never liked it. He never respected the business. And if you don't respect the business, man, you have no business being in it. You have no business being in it because, you know, sooner or later, you're going to get exposed. You know, yeah, you could have the body of a Greek god, but if deep down inside, if you're a pussy and you're in a shoot fight and you can't handle it, yeah, there goes your credibility. I bet Bo Watts... I don't ever think Bill Watts would have even, you know, he would have probably gave Luger a, listen, man, you know, you you just, you know, you don't have it in my book, man. I never bought into Lex Luger, never. He just seemed to me like a smug, arrogant, big bodybuilder asshole that didn't respect the wrestling business. And I'll just leave it at that. I saw him at a fan fest in Charlotte. I wanted to feel sorry for him because he was in such bad shape physically. Uh, this may sound harmless to say, but I I couldn't because he's still sitting there trying to make money off of a business that he never respected. You know, I I, I mean, if that sounds harmless, I'm sorry, but that's how I feel. No, I, I you know, you know, I thought it was interesting that Florida stopped pushing guys like Brian Blair and Mike Graham, and they went after former football players from the state of Florida. You had Luger who played at Miami. You had Ron Simmons, who was a huge deal at Florida State. Jim Ross probably made all of you aware of that years ago. And Ed Gantner, who was a big star for the the South Florida Bulls. And, I mean, Gantner, like, his his name came up earlier. But, I mean, that guy was bad. You know, honestly, I don't think Florida wrestling fans ever got over the hangover of Dusty leaving. Once Dusty left, it was over. Yeah, it would never be the same. It, it it could never, you know, because now they're competing with Turner. They're competing with Crockett. They're competing, you know, mid south, world class. I mean, we were getting there would be Saturday nights in the mid eighties on a Saturday night. You know, my friend would come over and uh, you know we would sit here and just drink beer and you know uh, do the shit and we you know watch uh, the Turner show from six to eight. From 9 to 10, it was uh, world-class. 10 to 11, with uh, the old PWF show with Gordon Soley and Joe Pettacino. And then it was uh, Mid-South. You know, we, we'd sit there for four hours on a Saturday night, me and, me and one of my good friends, and just sit there and get just, like, you know, obliterated and have the time of our lives. You know, Florida <laughs> wasn't even in the question. Florida wrestling. I mean, we get wasted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We used to have a few watching the old the uh, midnight show on uh, WOR TV, like me and three or four guys. But we just have a couple. We wouldn't get obliterated. <laughs> the Florida, what uh, the Florida show or uh, which no, show? the uh, WWF show. It started at midnight, so you really couldn't do too much. But I mean, it right. brings back so oh, many great I, memories. We used to get that heroes on WOR, right? Joe, I'm ringing out there, Joe McHugh. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah. But what was it? Was it? Uh, where was it taped? Like Harris, or somewhere in Pennsylvania? Uh, let me see. Why am I having a, a mind blank? Uh, Allentown, Allentown, Pennsylvania. Allentown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, I mean, come on. You know, the uh, the, the when when Roddy Piper came into WWF, I mean, you know, I'm going, wow. Yeah, now I'm going to watch this crap because I never wanted to watch wrestling from New York until Roddy Piper came in. Now, okay. for me, once Piper got there, it was must-watch TV for me. I loved Roddy Piper. Loved him. Right, they, I met him on my 30th birthday in West Palm Beach. Like, what was, was awesome. it like being a Florida fan, living down there, you know, being a wrestling fan, and 1984, the WWF invades your home territory? Uh, it sucked. The first thing you would think of, Okay, you know, it's a big deal. It's it's New York wrestling, but you know, we already had the chance to see it. 
you know, on TV and it just signaled the death of what we grew up on. You know, there was, you know, sooner or later, there's going to be no more Florida wrestling. And that's, you know, basically, you know, yeah, it was a big deal. I mean, me and my friend Greg, we went to see the first WrestleMania at the Hollywood Sportatorium on closed circuit TV. It sucked, but it was a big deal. We'd watch the pay-per-views, but it wasn't the wrestling that we grew up on. And we just, you know, down here, we didn't like the fact that Vince was taking all our guys, you know, like the Briscoes, the Bunks, Dick Slater, you know, Vince was taking our guys and gimmicking them. All of a sudden it's like, okay, it's over. It was brutal to the hardcore fans like us. I'm sure, you know, Jeff Browner will say the same, same thing. Greg Good, Barry, Howard Baum, you know, it was brutal. You know, there was no more Florida wrestling. It was over. And that was sad. The New York shit that bored us to tears is now taking over. There's going to be no more blood. There's going to be no more, you know, I mean, it just, it sucked. It did. It just sucked. It it was depressing. It was a part of my life was, you know, gone. Yeah. That, that's gotta be like a big, I mean, you were a fan for 20 years and to see it become kind of minor league overnight almost. I mean, that must have been just brutal. Well, it was a minor league, John. It was, it was just the way the product was presented. And, you know, the, the, the content of the product, it was more about gimmicky. It was more about, you know, the entertainment, you know, Florida. It was, it was always pushed as serious athletic competition. You know, sooner or later, you know, when you're young, you figured, okay, this isn't on the up and up, but our attitude was make it look good. You know, kind of like Japan, you know, make it look good. Make it look believable. Don't insult our intelligence. And if you do that, we'll enjoy it and we'll buy a ticket for next week. And that's the way it was back then, you know, but. You know, as far as when Vince took over, it was sad. It was extremely sad. It was like part of my childhood was taken away. Part of my life was taken away from me. And And it sucked. I totally get it. It sucked. Yeah. I want to ask you about 1987, when all of a sudden, Crockett's guys, his biggest stars, start appearing on Florida television and the Florida arena shows. And we're talking Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, Arn Anderson, Lex Luger, the Rock and Roll Express, et cetera. What was that like? Well, it wasn't like a Florida thing. It was like WCW and Turner, you know, it was Crockett took over. I mean, for a time, Florida was a B, like a quote unquote B circuit, you know, where, you know, all of a sudden we're seeing guys like T. Joe Khan and Colt Steele. And uh, it was almost like a developmental, it was almost like Ohio Valley wrestling for Crockett. But still there are major towns in Florida, uh, Miami, Tampa, Orlando, Jacksonville, you know, uh, you're not going to fill the Miami beach convention center. You're not going to fill the Jacksonville Coliseum six, seven, eight thousand people where uh Tito Khan's in your main event. But everyone you know, they had to send the big stars down, you know, and then Crockett this is when Crockett was doing the tours, you know, you'd watch the TBS show and Major League Go Professional Wrestling, you know, next week we'll be in Michigan. Florida all of a sudden became part of their tour, you know, wherever they were going. I mean, come on, you know, it's back then where Crockett was going everywhere. They were a national company and you know, that's when Dusty uh, bought the jet. You know, hey, Jimmy, Jimmy, let's buy this jet so we can fly everywhere. You know, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, David Crockett's going, hey, Jimmy, uh, losing a lot of fucking money here, man. But, you know, as far as us in Florida, you know, we're just another stop on Crockett's national tour. Didn't mean nothing. But yeah. we had the show. And like I said, man, we were like Ohio Valley Wrestling. Crockett would send the undercard guys down here. Hey, let's send them down there. If they can get over in Florida, they can get over everywhere. It's up to you, Charlotte. Yeah. When Crockett stopped bringing the guys in, and this is right around after Starcade 87, I don't remember this. Did the Florida promotion fold right away, or did they continue to sputter along? 
I mean, whatever was left, I think they folded. And then when Dusty got let go from Crockett, when Turner started talking to Crockett, you know, about, hey, you know, we want to keep you on the network. But, you know, whenever that fiasco ended, Dusty came back down here and he started the PWF uh, with, you know, and that was a freaking fiasco. Uh, the Bubblegum Kid and uh, Lou the Perez. Yeah, the big steel man. It was horrible. But, <laughs> I hate to say it, but, you know, if I'm sitting here at night, you know, I, I got a nice buzz on, there's nothing else on TV, I'd watch it. I'm a glutton for punishment, I guess you could say. But, I mean, it was wrestling. There was nothing else I had to watch it. But it was horrible. There was nothing resembling what I grew up on. And it got to the point where I thought to myself, I can't watch this shit anymore. It's just, it's horrible. I mean, I'd rather stick red hot sewing needles in my eyes. I mean, it's, it's fucking terrible. I don't have too many good memories of that period. It's when I started, you know, when WCW started getting good, when late 80s with Terry, you know, the program with Terry and Rick. Boy, I could tell you a, a story about crashing Rick Flair's birthday party in Greensboro. That's a whole other story. But, um, yeah, I just, you know, Florida was just done. It was like stick a fork in it. It's fucking done. Yeah, Dusty Sad. supposedly would go around saying, hey, you know, if the, the new company doesn't keep me around, I'll just go to Florida and start up again. And when he did that, and this yeah. kind of t- ties into something you were talking about, he started building a big match between himself and Terry Funk. Well, Funk yeah. agreed to join the NWA and the NWA said, hey, don't appear on that show. We don't want an accident to happen to you and have our summer plans destroyed. I mean, they had an active role in kind of killing Dusty's plan. Right. Well, Dusty had the big match with Terry Funk the night before Flair and Steamboat in Nashville. Me and Jeff Aldrin went to Nashville, and it was that, that you know, the show was on a Sunday night, of course, pay-per-view. But the Saturday night before... Dusty had a big show at the James L. Knight Center in Miami. It was him against Terry Funk. I can't remember the stipulation, but Terry gave the great promo of, I don't want to go down to that rat-infested city of Miami. You know, and it was I can't remember what the stip of the match was, but me and Jeff were in Nashville at the time. And uh, I think the crowd that was drawn was underwhelming, but... You know, it was like Dusty grasping at straws. You know, he was trying to hold something together that his luster had. I mean, come on, here's Dusty Rhodes in the 80s, the late 80s, and he was a star, what, 15, 20 years ago? You know, a lot of his fans just didn't give a shit anymore, or they were watching Hulk Hogan now. Dusty thought that he could just get back together with Gordon Soley and it would be 1976 again, and that wasn't the case. Ego. Dusty was an egomaniac, man. You oh, know, he yeah. Was an egomaniac. Yeah, and he thought he could do it, and uh, it got to the point where, uh, you know, he he thought wrong. But, nope. you know, if I'm him, I'm going, hey, man, I had a nice ride while it lasted. I made a hell of a lot of money. And oh, yeah. then, uh, hey, he ended up getting a gig with Vince. He didn't just get a gig. He got a main event gig. I would have never guessed that coming into 1990, whenever it was. Yeah, well, I'm not talking about the polka dot shit. I mean, talking about afterwards where he's working for NXT and he's working with talent. That's what I meant, you know. I mean, that's what I meant where he's going, you know, hey, man, I can help talent and I can mean something to the business again. I always thought that was cool. I mean, Dusty meant a lot to Florida. You know, when he turned, it was a huge Huge deal. I mean, when he turned babyface, my God, he turned before I moved to Los Angeles in 77. When I moved back here in 81, I had friends of mine that never had any interest in wrestling. Okay. And like in the music industry, when I got a job, you know, uh, with this music distributor that I worked for when they first started out, my boss was, I'd known him for years and years. And he says, Dave, he says, Hey man, um, wrestling's coming down next week, you know, Dusty Rhodes. And I'm, you know, his nickname was Bunky. His real name was Forrest Wilson. I mean, if your name is Forrest Wilson, you'd want a nickname, wouldn't you? But his name was Bunky. Uh, if that was me, I would go, no, I'll stick with my real name. 
But anyways, he said, Dave, we're going to go. Do you want to go? And, you know, you're a wrestling fan. I said, yeah, sure. So we went, we went to show at the Hollywood Sportatorium. You know, it was fun. But for me, it sucked. But it was just fun going to a live wrestling show sitting in the front row. But people, it was almost like back when I was a kid, Eddie Graham and Malenko had this monumental feud. They, they freaking hated each other back in the 60s. You thought they really hated each other and they really wanted to fucking kill each other. People that never watched wrestling on Saturdays, they knew about the fact that Eddie Graham and Malenko hated each other. That right there says something. They didn't watch the show on Saturdays, but just word of mouth, and they knew who Eddie Graham was. They knew who Malenko was, and they knew they hated each other's guts, quote unquote, but they knew. And that's how important wrestling was in Florida back in like the 60s and the early 70s. It was important. It was freaking amazing. That's what I grew up on. And as the business changed and grew and, you know, I don't want to say grew, but just changed and let's leave it at that. Yeah, there were things that made me want to hang on, you know, thank God for Terry Funk, Ric Flair, Roddy Piper. You know, they, and then I got introduced to Japan stuff. That's what kept my interest alive. And then the late 80s, early 90s, you know, as far as the NWA stuff, you know, okay. But Florida was just done. But then, you know, the WWF stuff was cool. But I was always an NWA Florida guy. Bottom line, NWA guy. But Wrestling's wrestling, you know, if I saw a great WWE, WF, whatever you want to fucking call it, if I saw a great match, I'll be the first one to say that was freaking incredible. It was fantastic. I mean, no. John, I was watching the, the Hell in the Cell match with Foley and The Undertaker. I was sitting there a Sunday night, and uh, I get a phone call. Lifford Hobley, who uh, used to play for the Miami Dolphins, he was a safety. He grew up in Louisiana. He was from uh, Materi, Louisiana. And he said, Dave... You know, because I used to sell CDs to a lot of the Miami Dolphins players. And uh, Lifford and I got to be very pretty good friends. And he's, Dave, I'm watching this. I can't believe this shit, man. That motherfucker's dead. I'm going, no, he's not, Lifford. Calm down. And Mark Clayton was sitting with him. And Mark gets on the phone and he says, Dave, he says, man, you used to tell me about this shit. I always thought it was fake as shit. He goes, that motherfucker's hurt. I said, yeah, Mark. Uh, how would you feel if you just got your ass slammed through the fucking uh, steel cage? And drop that far. How the fuck would you feel, Mark? <laughs> and he just started laughing. But back then, you know, okay, this is what I'm dealing with now. I still have to have some wrestling in my life. But, John, the bottom line is I don't give a shit anymore, man. I don't watch anything. That's sad, man. I just don't care. No, I, you know? I watch it, but sparingly. But, Dave, we yeah. have run out of time. I want to thank you for sharing what was inside okay. your head? There was a lot of good stuff in there, man. Thank you. I hope I didn't talk too much, man. No, you were fine. Everyone's heard everything I have to say, so don't worry about it. So, yeah, thank you for coming on. Hey, if uh, you ever want me back, man, you know where to find me. I definitely do, and I definitely will. And I want to thank Lightning Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does on this show, making this sound somewhat respectable. I want to thank everyone for listening. Tune in next week, and this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. 